60,000 is brought to you in part by RP Funding. RP Funding Inc. is licensed and can offer loans in Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Kentucky, Louisiana, North Carolina, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, and West Virginia, and is also licensed by the Mississippi Department of Banking and Consumer Finance and by the Pennsylvania Department of Banking and Securities. Office is located at 500 Wonderly Place, Suite 300, Maitland, Florida, 32751. Telephone 321-397-4420. RP Funding Nationwide Mortgage Licensing System ID number is 70168, and Robert Palmer's NMLS ID number is 76197. Hey, we're saving thousands with Robert Palmer right here on the Saving Thousands Radio Network. Robert Palmer is the consumer empowering voice that's on the air to help you. He comes on the air each and every day, 365 days a year, and with iHeart 24 hours a day to help you. We don't try to sell you anything on this show. No one is trying to talk you into any political party or any such thing. We are here to empower you. Robert is here to give back, to pass along the knowledge that he has picked up in several years in the mortgage industry. Because during that time, just imagine how many credit scores he's looked at. Imagine how many mortgage applications he's looked at. How many times has he sat down with a couple and explained ways that they can improve their credit score so they can live the American dream. So that's what we're doing here today. Well, we've got a great lineup for you today. We're gonna talk about the student loan problems. We'll analyze your credit scores. We're gonna go back to the beginning when Robert Palmer first set out with his own company and set out to sort of revolutionize the mortgage industry on your behalf. We've got an Ask RP today. Here's a son who shares the same name as his father and his father doesn't pay his bills. So this this young man who does pay his bills, oftentimes his credit is being affected because his father doesn't pay a bill, but the credit bureau puts that ding on his credit file, okay? And we're gonna talk about refis, and we're gonna talk about eliminating private mortgage insurance. And chances are you're paying it and you don't even know you are. But Robert, during the housing meltdown, you and I were doing radio, And I remember specifically, one of the shows you did was not about the real estate meltdown, but you were warning against similar problems that were starting to show up in student loans. Yeah, this uh, this student loan thing is is crazy. uh, So we let me. I I still give a little background, but uh, what what excited me is the Department of Education uh, came out with what hopefully will be some uh, some relief. Uh, It's been coming. Uh, We're going to talk about what I think kind of created the student loan bubble because it, it, the way I look at it, it's an almost exact replica of the uh, of the mortgage bubble. And, and it looks like some of the uh, same defenses that people were able to use who had problems with their mortgages may come into line with student loans. So before we get into this possible relief, which could mean some people's student loans actually being wiped away, oh. uh, which would be pretty awesome right rob i mean that would be major. again depending on the circumstances and that's what we're going to talk about so first let me let me kind of run through the parallels of of student loans and subprime mortgages right so everybody's aware of the <laughs> the the disaster created by subprime mortgages and the housing crisis and everything else and uh, what i will tell you is uh, i know from from experience from people i personally knew who were in the mortgage business a lot of folks who used to sell subprime mortgages uh, made the transition to for-profit colleges selling people student loans uh, after the uh, financial meltdown happened and they couldn't make the fast money in the mortgage business anymore. And so you had a lot of these same despicable tactics that were being used in the mortgage industry back in the heyday in the subprime days that were trapping borrowers in toxic mortgages. All those folks took those honed skills of deception and went over to work for for-profit colleges. Mm-hmm. And one of these big for-profit colleges, Corinthian, uh, you know, blew up uh, earlier this year. All right, Rob, did you hear about this? Yeah, I did. And I so, can remember, Robert, if you want to go back six years, you did an entire hour program on the early network days when we were together on the fact that a lot of these so-called colleges would bait and switch you by saying, we're going to give you a brand new computer. We're going to get you a laptop that's unbelievable. And all you have to do is sign up for this college. But the college yeah. wasn't much. Absolutely. It, it, it was crazy. You know, I talked about this and apparently no one listened. You know, no one at the Department of Education listened to me six years ago when I was ranting and raving on the radio about how this was going to be the next bubble. And I could see that the same practices that had been used in mortgages were now being used in student loans and, and, and the writing was on the wall. And so Corinthian, uh, you know, which owned Everest and a bunch of other colleges, uh, you know, they, they got popped because they were falsifying their placement uh numbers, you know, what percentage of people were landing jobs, 
Uh, in one particular example, there was a graduate who went to work at Taco Bell, and they counted that as a successfully placed job tied to the student's training. Uh, you know, I mean, this is this is the type of stuff that was discovered. And, and so what happened is because the Department of Education uh, did not listen to me six years ago, uh, Corinthian gave out $3.5 billion worth of student loans over the last five years. Billion. Okay. Billion. $3.5 billion. So you have a for-profit college who was lying about placement rates and lying about the benefits of going to their school, using all of these old subprime mortgage techniques, you know, all these guys who honed their skills, taking advantage of people with toxic mortgages, all went to work selling now student loans at for-profit colleges, and they racked up $3.5 billion, okay? Now, let me tell you, there is no house to foreclose on, uh, and most of these people ended up with not much of an education, uh, according to reports now coming out. Uh, so that three and a half billion bucks is, is pretty much wasted, and it all went into Corinthians' pockets so they could get rich. You know, one of the things I pointed out uh, when I, I talked about this years ago, Rob, is that the president of a, a for-profit college was making like ten times the salary of the president of Harvard. Right. Because they're they're just they were making that much money. They were taking such advantage of students. So here's what's going on now. And I think this is intriguing. And so I'm actually going to assemble all of my attorneys and we're going to have a conversation about this. So apparently there is a phrase, there is a clause in the promissory note of a student loan. And, and I don't have one of these. I would like to get my hands on one. Uh, if any of our listeners maybe have a student loan promissory note that they wouldn't mind sending to me, you can cross out personal information or whatever. But what I'm looking for uh, is, according to some research I did, there is a, a phrase that says, uh, in some cases, you may assert as a defense against collection of your loan that the school did something wrong. Now, that doesn't seem like it's in quotes where I found it in the article, but that doesn't sound like normal legalese to me. So I'm guessing that's not exactly what it says on the the note, the, the promissory note. But the idea here is that if your school broke the law, if your school committed fraud, if your school deceived you, you may be able to sue and have your student loan discharged. Okay, Rob? So what the what brought this to light is that the, the Department of Education has come out and they've identified around 40,000 people who they feel uh, fit this criteria, who mm. were Corinthian students, and they're going to get $544 million worth of student loans forgiven to this group. Now, remember, Corinthian had a total of $3.5 billion. So the, the initial 40000 I think, is the kind of final round of students, the most recent round of students. Uh, but there's a lot of pressure right now on the uh, Department of Education to do something for everyone. Now, the downside to this is, Rob, where's that $3.5 billion going to come from? It's going to come from the taxpayer. You bet. You know, so because the uh, you know Department of Education screwed up and didn't monitor these guys and let them rack up three and a half billion dollars worth of federally insured student loans, uh, that one are now defaulting like crazy, and two now have this potential clause that the students can fight back and possibly have the student loans discharged. Uh, that's going to be a three and a half billion dollar problem for the taxpayers. So, uh, I, but I think I think uh, better on the taxpayers than on these individual students, right? I mean, right. you know, we, we spread it across the entire country. We all take a little pain because our government screwed up on this one. Uh, it's better than the the students right now whose lives, you know, are potentially in shambles because of these toxic student loans they receive from these toxic for-profit colleges uh, without getting an education. Now, I'm sure there may be some good for-profit colleges out there. I'm not talking about the whole group. But I'm talking about the players like this particular one who are lying about placement rates and lying about job success rates. And so I'm going to assemble my team of attorneys. Uh, and, and on my own dime here, Rob, I am going to figure out uh, if there's if there's some other kind of relief here. You know, do we have to sit back and wait for the Department of Education to do something about this? Or can students band together with the help of some great attorneys? And I know some great attorneys. Uh, and go ahead and fight back now using this supposed clause that's in the promissory note, uh, which, again, if someone has one, I would love for you to send it to me at askrp at rpfunding.com. I would love to take a look at that. Uh, so when I meet with the attorneys, uh, we can figure this out. But this, this is my this is this is a new mission for me, Rob. You know, this is uh, a lot of people are negatively affected by this. I talked about this on my TV show years ago. I talked about this on the radio show years ago. It fell on deaf ears. $3.5 billion in loans with a college who has been closed down 
poor fraud and deceptive practices, I would think all of those people should be able to get their loans discharged. You know, and what about all the people who made the payments, right? I mean, they, yeah. are they, they're not entitled to any relief, I don't think. I mean, just because you discharge the debt doesn't mean you can go back and get your money back. Uh, bottom line is this is a huge problem. When you look at uh, economic graphs that show the, the increase in student loan debt, the spike that came in student loan debt, it almost perfectly mirrors the type of percentage increases we saw in mortgage leading up to the crash, leading up to the bubble. Hmm. And again, the same deceptive practices being used, Rob. Uh, you know, the the same types of, of sales techniques. That one of the one of the studies they did on a for profit college, you know, quoted that they were using a, a sales technique called the pain cycle. Uh, you know, I mean, just all all of these different things they built uh, to basically scare people or, or or fear people into signing up for these student loans and 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 getting these for-profit educations, which they didn't really care if you graduated or not. They were going to falsify the placement and success rate records and and go on with life and keep milking this federal student loan. Because the, the crazy thing is, even if someone dropped out after, there, there's a time limit. It's not very long. Something like 10 weeks or 12 weeks, as long as you attend a certain amount of time, uh, they get all the money, whether you continue the degree program or not. So uh, this this has been a big problem. I've had a lot of listeners reach out to me about this. Uh, if you've got comments you want to share, the text line is three five three five three. And uh, or again, if someone has that that student loan note, I want to take a look at it. I'm going to meet with my attorneys. I'm going to see if we can't put together uh, a guide or uh, some help or some kind of document or roadmap uh, to help people who may be affected by this fight back uh, to where if you have a student loan uh, with a college who broke state law, who committed fraud, who falsified records, which, I mean, from the from the research I did years ago, I, it looks like it's going to be a lot of them. Uh, you know, the other, the other interesting thing, Rob, is there, there's some other language in here which very much reminds me of mortgage, uh, and that is there's questions about whether or not your signature may have been forged on a promissory note. Uh, you know, that's one of the big foreclosure defense uh, techniques that company, you know, that, that lawyers use when it comes to mortgages. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so it, it's going to be very interesting to see how this all plays out and, and how this happens. But we're going to be at the front lines of this. We're going to make sure our listeners are aware of this because I'm sure a lot of them are affected. And uh, right here, I, I pulled this off of the, uh, the, the student aid or one of the federal government websites for student loans. And it says that you may be eligible for a discharge of your direct loan or FFEL program, FEL program loan in these circumstances, your school falsely certified your eligibility to receive the loan based on your ability to benefit from its training, right? So the idea here is that if they lied about placement rates and if they lied about the earnings potential you would have after receiving the degree, because these are required for calculating eligibility for these loans, if they falsely certified your eligibility because they falsified those placement rates and those job rates and those potential incomes, uh, then you may be able to, uh, and because of that, you would not have been able to get the student loan, right? You know, if at the end of the day they told the truth and said, well, nobody actually graduates and nobody gets a better job, uh, you would have been ineligible for the student loan. And so that's one clause you can use uh, in order to uh, possibly get your loan discharged. Uh, another is the the school signed your name on the application or promissory note without your authorization, or the school endorsed your loan check or signed your authorization for electronic funds transfer without your knowledge, unless the proceeds of the loan were delivered to you or applied to charges owed based uh, charges owed by you to the school. So the big one here is if they if they forged your signature on the application or the promissory note. I I will almost guarantee you there's some of that going on. Because, uh, you know, forging signatures on applications was rampant in the mortgage business. Uh, and a lot of these same same players went over to student loan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's definitely something when I, I talk to the attorneys, we're going to take a look at it and see. And then uh, the other is that your loan was falsely certified because you were a victim of identity theft. That's probably not going to apply to a lot of people. Uh, and then the school certified your eligibility, but because of physical or mental condition, age, criminal record, or other reason, you were disqualified from employment in the occupation in which you were being trained. So th- this probably applies to some people. You know, the, oh. the, the, these these for-profit colleges uh, were using no discretion. Uh, and so if the particular field that you were being trained in has a requirement uh, regarding criminal record, requiring physical or mental condition, requiring age, and you didn't meet that, uh, then again, this may be a way for you to challenge that student loan and get it discharged. 
Uh, so right now, the only way to do this is to get an attorney and actually sue. Uh, but they're, the, the Department of Education is trying to change that. They're trying to put together a streamlined program because so many people have been affected. They recognize that they dropped the ball on this. They recognize that a lot of people uh, have been taken advantage of and have been harmed by some by certain for-profit colleges. And, uh, and now it's time to clean up the mess. And, and as always, the big mess is going to cause taxpayers a lot of money. Uh, I think you know the only kind of shining light I see in this is it's going to take some. Uh, it's going to finally take the mortgage industry out of the spotlight, which we've uh, we've paid our penance and and cleaned up our act as an industry, and uh, and and this should you know this should really get people looking where the current problem is, and the current problem is with student loans. You know, I'll always remember when you did that show, and for so many years, nothing really crazy was going on, but boy, in this last year, this whole student loan thing is really causing some problems. And we'll continue to revisit this, ladies and gentlemen, because you may have some recourse down the way. And if there's anything possible that we can help you with, we will certainly do that. Our research people are working on this project right now. Well, one of the things that I hope that you'll garner from this show is financial freedom. I hope that you'll get the power to take over your financial situation. And you'll you'll no longer have to worry about those threatening phone calls during the dinner hour that you owe somebody money or no longer fear opening the mailbox because there's probably going to be some bad news or unexpected bills or penalties in there. You don't have to worry about that if you're in charge. Be proactive and not reactive. And one of the great tools that Robert Palmer gives you to help you get there, the Saving Thousands Rules to Success. That's right, the Saving Thousands Rules to Success. And as I was saying at the beginning of the program, Robert has learned so much about finance from you because he sees your credit scores. He looks into the mortgage applications. He sits down and talks to people. And so therefore he's come up with the 15 big rules, the saving thousands rules to success. They're easy to follow. They are so easy to follow. And once you start following them, you will have more money and you will definitely have more peace of mind and you'll definitely have control. Number one, of those rules that you'll find at savingthousands.com. Just click on the tab that says the rules. The number one rule is always shop around. Always shop around for your purchases. Shop around for places you put your money. Shop around for everything. And you're going to find out at the end of the day that shopping around garnered you a much better deal. We talk about knowing your numbers. You've got to know your home value. You've got to know the pay down on your car, okay? You've got to know the value of everything you've got from jewelry right on down the line. And you have got to know the numbers when it comes to the interest that you're paying, right? Nine out of 10 of you out there listening right now do not know the interest rate exactly on every one of their credit cards. You've got to know that. And if you're making anything at the bank, which is probably not anything, but if you are making money on an investment or some kind of a package at a bank, you need to know what that is and when it compounds and the fees you might be charged if you tap into that money. So it's all about knowing your numbers. And number three is the three-day rule. Always when you decide to make a major purchase, wait three days, you'll find that you get a much better deal when you've shopped, when you've looked, when you checked out the various industries that make that product or provide that service, you'll come out with the very, very best. All right, let's get back to this. Your credit score. There's a number you really need to know. You need to know your credit score. And Robert, let's talk about the difference in buying power between somebody that may be in the low 500s or mid 500s compared to somebody with a 750 credit score. Yeah, I mean, so for the 580, it can just mean you don't get a house at all. Ah, I mean, you, you know, you're going to be renting. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's the reality of it. Uh, you know, interest rate wise, it's not a huge difference. Yeah. You know, I would say that for some lenders, they really take advantage of the lower credit scores. I mean, the rate is worse. There, There's what we call a loan level price adjusters. So if all mortgages... 99% of all mortgages get securitized by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and Jenny Mae. And most people have heard of Fannie and Freddie. You know, they were in the news a lot during the crisis. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, we had to bail them out as taxpayers, right? You know, sure so we, we pumped all this money into Fannie and Freddie. Uh, and so what, what happens is banks don't like to make long-term loans, right? Because if you think about how a bank works, you go in there and you put money in your savings account, and then they loan that money to other people. Well, if they make me a 30-year mortgage with a really low interest rate based on money you've got in your savings account that today they're not paying us anything on. Really? But there will come a time when banks do have to pay interest on on savings accounts. If we look back 10 years ago, 
you know, 15 years ago, you could get five, five and a half. I remember I had a savings account like 15 years ago that paid like five and a half percent interest. Mm -hmm. And you know? toaster. Yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> you know, and and so the problem is if they make you a 30 year mortgage and then rates go up and now they have to start paying people on their savings accounts, they don't make any money. And so banks didn't like to make 30 year mortgages. So the, the answer was Fannie and Freddie. So Fannie and Freddie were created so that banks and mortgage companies like RP Funding could have a securitization platform to not use our own money to make the mortgages. Mm -hmm. And so all the mortgages are pretty much securitized by Fannie, Freddie, or Jenny, and they charge what's called a loan-level price adjustment for lower credit scores because uh -huh. they know those those statistics I shared with you. Yeah. The guy with the 780 is going to repay. The guy with the 580, there's a really, really strong chance he won't. And so when they look at the cost of foreclosure and they look at the cost of you know the attorney's fees and everything they have to do, that's expensive. They lose money. And so they charge, they make us charge higher rates via these loan level price. And the funny thing is these loan level price adjusters, it's public record. Like because they're government owned, if you go and Google right now and put in Fannie Mae LLPA or Fannie Mae loan level price adjuster, you can see how much they're telling us we have to raise your rate for the different credit scores. And so to get the absolute best score, you have to be over a 740. And then between 720 and 740, they hit us with a loan level price adjuster. The higher your amount you're borrowing, like percentage-wise, so the bigger your down payment, mm -hmm. the less of a loan-level price adjuster you get. If you're borrowing 60% of the value of the home, it's going to be less of an adjuster than if you're borrowing 95% of the value of the home, right? right? You've got more mm -hmm. skin in the game. And then as you go lower and lower and lower, the numbers get absolutely crazy. And then Fannie and Freddie have a hard cutoff at 620. They will not ah. let us securitize any mortgages through Fannie and Freddie below a 620 credit score. So that means at that point, all you can do is go FHA and get a government-insured loan, which is an FHA loan or a VA loan mm -hmm. or a USDA loan if you're trying to go below a 620. But even then, most lenders won't approve them because there's such a high likelihood of default. And then we get judged based on our default rates and all these other things. So it really is. It's important to know your score. Where it makes the biggest difference uh, is car loans and credit cards. Like they, It can be like a, a 10, 20, 30-point wow. difference in interest rate. Uh, because of your credit score, when you're looking at a, you know, there, there's the the Indian reservation doing the loans at like 200 percent interest. Oh yeah, they're killing for people with really bad credit, right? So I mean, it, it's out there. So having being conscious of your credit, keeping your credit score high is, is very important. I want to get back to those saving thousands rules to success because they're so simple to do, and you really do end up getting empowerment over your money. Rule number four is don't abuse credit, but don't fear it either. We've heard Robert talk about that on numerous shows, and there's a lot of articles at savingthousands.com based on that premise, where you see credit isn't just a luxury. Credit is a tool. Credit is something you need, just like Robert's been talking about during this show. You must keep your credit up. And to do that, you've got to establish credit in the first place. I know there's a lot of talk show pundits who are saying, don't take credit, don't have credit, pay for everything in cash. Well, how many of you are walking around with $300,000 to buy a house? How many of you are walking around with $40,000 to buy a car? You know, you've got to use credit, but don't abuse it either. In other words, don't take out 12 credit cards, run them up to the max, and then just walk away. Because that's going to cause you problems down the road. So don't abuse credit, but don't fear it either. Number five, I love. Rule number five is, if you know their tricks, they won't work. And a lot of times when you're listening to this radio show, Robert will be talking about the tricks of the financial industry, the smoke, the mirrors, the way that big financial institutions take away our money and we don't even know it. And if we do find out, boy, we feel bad because we've got no recourse. Well, the best recourse, I guess, would be, see, not getting into that trick in the first place. So if we know their tricks, they just won't work. So those are just some of the rules. I invite you to go to savingthousands.com, click on the rules, copy them off somehow, keep them with you, and before you know it, you'll know the rules by heart, and you will put them into action without even thinking about it. You know, Robert, oftentimes I'm asked about how this all began, how your company first began, and I was there when it first started some eight, ten years ago when you came up with some great ideas to change the mortgage industry, and you came on the radio with me, and we talked about it, and a lot of people were saying you wouldn't be in business more than a year. Some said less than that, but I believed in you. So here's the funny thing, folks. So Rob, Rob worked for a radio station, and the same people that owned that radio station also owned a mortgage company. That's right. And so during <laughs> during the week, he was on the radio station that was uh, owned by the people that owned a different mortgage company, and on the weekends, he was on the radio with me. 
And and I know you guys had some very interesting conversations in those early little, days. Got a little worried about <laughs> what is this? What is this <laughs> lunatic? What, what is this lunatic Robert Palmer down in Orlando doing, telling people no lender fees? And uh, it's worked out. So anyway, so the other big thing. That, so now I'm here full time. Yeah, full time. Yeah. So Rob <laughs> Rob finally came over to the right side of life. Uh, so the other big thing uh, we were talking about FICO scores this weekend. FICO so, scores. Yeah. We got to go back to the beginning on that. Most people don't even don't even understand what a FICO is because they've never heard those initials yep. except now in the past year you and i started talking about fico seven years ago but most people had never heard of it by then and now this last year it seems like the industry said wait a minute robert palmer's right we got to start pushing that so on every one of my 27 credit cards or how many ever i've got every every statement i get now says we'll give you your fico score for free and so here's the new crazy thing is you got to figure out which version of the fico score you're getting oh you mean there's more than one yeah so you know so oh, originally no. Originally, we talked about there was the FACO score, right? And so the FACO score. So let me give let me give our listeners a little background here. Sure. Uh, because again, whether all of you like it, know it or not, you have a FICO score. And anytime you try to borrow anything, credit card, even if you try to get like, homeowners insurance and car insurance now, all of these financial companies are using your FICO score to rate you. Okay. And so what the FICO stands for, F I C O, it stands for Fair Isaac Corporation. Fair F I Isaac. CO Corporation, Fair mm-hmm. Isaac Corporation, they invented this score. They invented the idea of looking at our credit report and assigning a number to it that gave the statistical probability that we would repay our debt. And so the higher the score is, the more likely you are to repay. The lower the score is, the more likely you are to never repay, costing the bank, mortgage company, whoever is giving you the money, uh, money because you don't pay it back. And, and so FICO, they developed this, they patented it, obviously, and then they sell it to lenders, Okay. And so as consumers started saying, well, we want to know what our score is. And so then the bureaus, Equifax, Experian, TransUnion, they uh, probably about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Rob, they started Mm -hmm. selling consumers their credit reports directly. So back way back in the day, you as a consumer couldn't even see your own credit report. Like we, you had to get it through a bank and then you could send a letter off to the bureau and they would email and mail one back, email, they would mail one back to you and it was all like archaic looking. And so then they figured out that they could make more money by selling the reports directly to consumers themselves. And this is where like the freecreditreport.com guys came about and freecreditscore.com and Equifax and Experian and TransUnion. You can go to all these sites and they will sell you a service where you can, as a consumer, see your own credit report. And because that's their data, right? So Experian, Equifax, TransUnion, they own the data so they can sell you the credit report and all that money is their profit. Now, consumers decided, well, we don't wanna just see our credit report we want to see our credit score, too, because that's what lenders keep telling me. Lenders say, I'm sorry, sir, we can't make you a loan because your credit score is too low. Lenders don't really say we can't make you a loan because of this, that, and the other on your credit report. They say we can't make you this loan because your credit score is too low. So consumers said, well, this is great, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, that you're selling me access to my credit report, but I want to know what my score is. And so now they said, well, this is great. This sounds like an opportunity to make more money. We're going to sell them their credit score as well. But the problem is if they sell you a FICO score, they have to pay a royalty. They have to pay a fee to Fair Isaac Corporation, FICO. Mm-hmm. And now let me tell you, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion are some greedy fellas, and they do not like sharing the profits with Mr. Fair Isaac, Mr. FICO. So what did they say? They said, well, consumers are inherently stupid. That's what they think. And uh, so we're going to just make up our own credit score and we're going to give them fancy names. And even though no lender in America uses the Vantage score Mm -hmm. from Equifax, that's what they were selling you when you bought your credit score with your credit report from their website. And so guys like me went on the radio and said, hey, consumer, you got to be careful out there because as a lender, we use the FICO score and they're selling you a fake O score called the Vantage, the Vanquish, the the Envision. I mean, they give them these really fancy, creative-sounding names. At the end of the day, they are garbage because no one else uses them. So, great, I'm going to sell you a score, Mr. Consumer, and I'm going to make up a random number, and then when you go to borrow money from a bank, they're going to buy the actual FICO score, and you're <laughs> going to have a completely different number. So, that's how all this started. So, I'm glad to see that because so much of us rambling and complaining about this— they are now finally selling the FICO score instead. Mm-hmm. However, 
FICO decided they would release a new version of the FICO score, reconvoluting all of our lives. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So all of a sudden this weekend, I get this this Facebook thing, and then I get an email from Robert Palmer. Then I get an instant message that says, you know all the FICO stuff we've been talking about all these years? Guess what? Now it's FICO 8 or right, something yeah. like that. Like Microsoft goes 1, 2, 3, 4 and messes things up. Now FICO's kind of joining the club. So, so here's the problem. <clears throat> so FICO 8 is now out. So most of the lenders and mo- most of these credit companies are giving your FICO score going to give you your FICO 8. So to make things even more confusing, the credit score that we use in the mortgage business, mm-hmm. right? For Equifax, we use the FICO version 5. For TransUnion, for TransUnion we use the FICO version 4. And for Experian, we use the FICO version 2. I'm so confused. Yeah, exactly. I have a headache. And, and, and I'm going to share my scores so people can get an understanding of how different this is. So I, I use myfico.com, right? That's where I personally go to monitor my credit mm-hmm. because it gives you the most access to the FICO score, which is, to me, the important one. And, and like four or five years ago, it was the only place I could get a FICO score. And even then, I can only get it through a couple of the bureaus. Uh, somebody wouldn't wouldn't participate on myfico.com because they thought mm-hmm. it was taking money away from their direct-to-consumer sales. It's all about money, people. It's all about greed. So, so uh, I sign up. I'm on my FICO. So my FICO now, you for I think it was like sixty bucks. I paid sixty dollars to get uh, my three scores, my three FICO eight scores, and my three credit reports. And then I also, at the same time on Friday, I pulled my credit here at RP Funding so I could compare the two and and see how close they were. Because I'm buying a house, so I had to pull my credit anyway. Because mm-hmm. as I've mentioned before. Uh, even if I had all the money in the world, I would still finance my home because of the tax benefits and everything else. Yeah. Uh, it's better to invest my cash in my business, put my, my, my cash in the stock market, and to finance uh, the home I'm going to, to hopefully purchase. So uh, as, I, as I look at this, all right, so my FICO 8, all right, I have a 770. We'll start with Equifax because there's three bureaus, Equifax, mm-hmm. TransUnion, Experian. What these three companies do are they get updates from your creditors every, every month. Your credit cards, your car loans, all of your people, they send the information to Equifax, TransUnion, Experian, and they hold the data of the credit report, but they don't generate the score. When it comes time to generate the score, they transmit that data to FICO. FICO then generates the score and sends it back to them, and that's how we get a credit report. So at Equifax, my FICO 8 is a 778. Okay. Okay. My FICO 5, which is what's used for mortgages, is a 759. And that matched mm. what I pulled here at RP Funding for Equifax, spot mm-hmm. on the 759, okay? <clears throat> now, the cool thing is at myfico.com, they will let you see the previous FICO scores. And this is a new feature, all right? So they, they started this feature for Equifax and Experian on January 30th, and they just started it for TransUnion on March 6th. So if you sign up for MyFICO and you pull your credit report, there's a button that says view additional FICO score versions used in mortgage, auto, and bank card decisions. Right. So again, I'm if I'm just looking at the front page, the FICO eight, I say, Oh, great, I have a seven seventy-eight. But then when I call my mortgage company, I call RP funding up, they're gonna pull the FICO five, which is a seven fifty-nine. So if I click on that button on myfico.com, it says show me other score versions. Sure. My FICO five, and it says commonly used in mortgage lending. That's how that one's labeled, which is accurate. So the very top one it gives me is my FICO eight, and it says the most widely used version, which I would uh, I would I would challenge if it's the most sure. widely used version. Uh, and then the next one down says commonly used in mortgage lending, FICO score five, previous version, most widely used for mortgage lending, which is accurate. And there I have a 759. So even there, I think I have a 778. But then when I go in here to see for a mortgage, I have a 759. Now to make things worse, the next section down says commonly used in auto lending. Okay. Oh, no. And there's two versions. There's FICO auto score version eight, which I have a 794. And then there's FICO Auto Score version five, which I have a 770. So I mean, look at all these different scores. It's insane. Very and, and so now the next section down says commonly used in credit card lending. So oh. so the credit card, there's a, a FICO Bank Card Score version eight, and there I have a 797. And then the old one, the FICO Bank Sco- Bank Card Score version five, I have a 783. So. All these different scores, ranging from 759 to 783, are all my FICO scores, all from Equifax's credit bureau, but they're all different. And the only way, I think this is so cool that my FICO offers this now, because previously there was no place you could go to see all these different versions of your sure. FICO score. So they, they really are doing a lot 
to try to to pull back the veil and be more transparent to consumers. So if if we go to TransUnion, this is this was crazy, Rob. So at TransUnion, my FICO score eight is a seven eighty one. So even better. Mm-hmm. All right. At Equifax, my FICO score eight was a seven seventy eight, and my mortgage score, the FICO five, was a seven fifty nine. At TransUnion, my FICO score eight was a seven eighty one, but my FICO for mortgage is only a seven twenty five. It's it's that's that much lower. Oh, man. There's a there's almost a sixty point difference that can hurt between my FICO score eight and my FICO score four, which is what's used for mortgage lending. And then if you go down to auto for auto lending, I have an eight oh four, but for mortgages, I have a seven twenty five. I mean, this is it, it, it's it's crazy that there's lenders using all these different versions. But I have to applaud my FICO. This is so great. They're letting us see this as consumers. And that 725, that's what I saw when I pulled mm-hmm. it here from RP Funding. So it's spot on. And then over at Experian, I have a 770 FICO 8 and a 750 FICO 2. Right. And so one of the mm. things one of the things that hurts me is I don't use my credit cards enough. Yeah. And so yeah. what TransUnion dinged me for, because the other cool thing is they give you the reasons. They tell you the reason why your score is is lower. And so the reason my score is low, so I clicked on the 725. And it gives me four negative factors, okay? And so the first one says you have too few credit accounts, okay? <laughs> uh, the second one says you opened a new credit account relatively relatively recently, okay? The next one says I have not established a long enough revolving credit history, which is funny because my oldest credit card is like 20 or 17 or 18 years old. That's pretty good. Uh, and then and then the final thing is there are no recent balances on your revolving credit accounts. So here we tell people they should keep their credit accounts at zero, but my FICO version 4 at, uh, at, at TransUnion is lower because there are no recent balances on my revolving accounts. Now, when I click on the FICO 8, uh, they don't want to give me any reasons. Okay, so FICO 8 doesn't have any reasons, I guess because I have a 781. Well, that'll work. So it's, it's good enough that there's nothing. But th- again, this is this is fascinating to me that we can see as consumers, they finally have pulled it back. So I can see that a mortgage <clears throat> lender would see my score. My mid-score would be the, the 750. Uh, with an auto, my mid-score would be like a 751. I mean, th- this is this is fascinating. And that's it, myfico.com, which is what I personally use because it gives mm-hmm. me the most insight and uh, this is a newer feature where you can see the previous score versions. Very fascinating stuff. If you were listening to the show months and months ago, you heard Robert talk about upcoming changes in the mortgage industry. It's the new kind of a, a no before you owe consumer benefit package from the government. It's kind of the first thing the government has done to change the mortgage industry, major changes that is, since 1976. And when Robert first talked about TRID, he talked about that it was going to take and make a lot of changes procedurally in mortgage companies. Well, all of a sudden, some of the big giant mortgage houses and then some of the very small mortgage houses began to fear this thing. They started thinking, we've been doing it a certain way for years and years and years. Our computers are set up. Our people are trained toward a certain protocol. How in the world are we going to make that change? I mean, there's new documentation. There's new paperwork. And a lot of the companies have been scared to death of this. And in reaction to that, they've been telling people, hey, if you get a mortgage, it may take 60, 70, 80 days to close. Well, Robert Palmer is a very proactive guy, if you haven't figured that out by now. So Robert, when this thing was first announced and it would take place in October, yes, just this past October, well, he got his people working with the TRID systems early. I mean, they were still processing loans under current regulations back then, but they were also processing loans using TRID. So they knew how both of them translated back to the same thing, and that's getting you the money on time to buy your house. So no, Robert Palmer never feared 60, 70, 80 days. In fact, early October, TRID came into effect. Other companies were stumbling, other companies were having problems. Some companies even stopped taking applications for a while. Well, Robert Palmer didn't. So you can close on time with a good TRID loan and doing this through companies who are proactive that know what they're doing. And that's RP funding. Well, Robert, we've got an Ask RP here. We've got a young man who lives in Jacksonville. He and his father not only live in the same zip code, but they share the same name. Well, dad doesn't pay his bills very well. And the son is saying his credit is being deemed. So what do they do? 
Yeah, so this is where that dispute process comes in, and we went through that. You can go to savingthousands.com, you can listen to that whole show on credit disputes. Uh, Producer Dave, did we name that like disputes or something? Do you know? Yeah, something along the line of dispute (laughs) is going to be in the title of the show. If not, we'll make sure it's very clear that that's the show about fixing your credit, disputing things on your credit. Uh, The other thing I would recommend is uh, I would maybe get a P.O. box in a different zip code. So we talked about yesterday how zip code is one of the key matching factors. Yeah. So if you and your father live in the same zip code, it's going to make things even worse, right? Now, you can go get a P.O. box in a different zip code, and whenever you apply for credit, use that P.O. box, which is going to fix that zip code match, which may help. It's going to help a little bit. Uh, but the big thing is you got to dispute those. You need to tell them in the dispute letter, hey, these are not mine. These are my father's. We have the same name. We live in the same zip code. However, we have a different social security number. Here is my social security number. Please get all of this junk off of my credit. And, and that's where the dispute process is going to mm-hmm. come into play. Now, I was reading some interesting articles last night, Rob, um, that, that actually if you if they fail to properly respond to your disputes and you are harmed by that, you can't actually sue the credit bureaus. Oh, really? Um, and, and one of the keys there is you want to keep copies of all the letters. So, I, you know, at that point, I would say send the letters by certified mail because he's got a legitimate dispute here, right? This isn't someone who's just frivolously disputing something that really did happen to try to knock it off and beat the system. Yeah. He's got a real problem. He's really uh, got to use the system to his advantage. And if they fail to respond properly, he would have a very strong case to then sue the credit bureaus to get it fixed. Uh, but it's important to keep documentation of everything you did. Because if you end up having to go to court with the credit bureaus, uh, which I would recommend if they fail to, to fix something like yeah. this, you'll want to have good documentation. You'll want to have certified mail where you sent the letters. I would recommend him not using the online dispute process. All right, again, this is something major enough that I would not use the online system. I would send a good old-fashioned letter through certified mail to the bureaus with a very detailed explanation. Yesterday I said it really doesn't matter what your explanation is. This is one case where that is not true. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when you've got identity confusion like this, you want to really paint the picture of here's who he is, here's who I am. You need to correct this, send it by certified mail. And if they fail to react and fail to take action, you have the right to take legal action in the future against them. So the follow-up to that is when you're making out a credit app, there's usually some line on there, Robert, that will say, how long have you lived at this address? So I asked the question, is that for one, does that, is my credit affected if I move around a lot? And number two, maybe that's for identification purposes? It's for identification purposes. And so what they want is they're going to run all your zip codes over the last two years to, okay. try to, to try to figure out who you are. And so that's where once you've been in the new zip code for two years, the old zip code stuff will follow you around less. But again, uh, if something's matching by your social security number, you're not going to get away from it. <laughs> you know, by having a different zip code. Mm-hmm. But sometimes these cross-identity errors will go down when your zip code changes. Uh, so, again, it's just a, it's, a, it's a little nuance of how credit works and the fact that they put a lot of weight, a lot more weight than they probably should on zip code because the, they don't always have the Social Security number. You know, not every yeah. piece of credit has your Social Security number tied to it, but they still have to figure out how to match it to your credit file. I mean, if you think about that, it's, I mean, it's, it's a pretty tough feat to do. You know, the fact that there's a Robert Palmer somewhere who didn't pay a medical bill, but they don't have the social security number, then they got to figure out whose credit to put that on. I mean, the the amount of data and analytics they have to do is pretty outstanding. If you have a question for Robert Palmer, it's as simple as, like we said there, ask our people. How do you do that? Well, it's as simple as opening up savingthousands.com. That's savingthousands.com. And when you see the homepage, look at the very top of the homepage and you'll see homepage, that would be the tab. Also, the rules, there's a tab for you for the Saving Thousands rules. There's one called radio shows. Well, that's an archive of past radio shows. So when you click on it, you will get a listing by topic of shows that have been recorded over the past eight years. That's a lot of listening, folks. Also, across the top of the page, you'll see station listing. Well, that's self-explanatory. That's all the stations that are affiliated with the uh, Saving Thousands network. Next to that, we're home. There it is. Ask Robert. Once you click on that, there will be a form appearing on your computer. Simply fill out the form, ask your question. We get that question. Robert Palmer answers it directly to you and will probably use that topic on a future show. Because if you're wondering about something like that young man in Jacksonville was, perhaps you're not the only one that has that question on that topic. So that's one of the ways we come up with new material for the show. Works out pretty doggone good. Well, one of the things we talk a lot about is refis, and we've got a few shows in the bank 
over private mortgage insurance. And of all the different people that are involved in the mortgage industry, FHA is probably the one that's been getting most of the conversation on shows like ours and with people who make payments because FHA has been very, very tough on mortgage insurance and the people who have to pay it. So for, again, for, and again, this is stuff the average public doesn't even know goes on. That's why we're here. So FHA, let me give you the backstory on this. I'm a big backstory guy. There you like, go. I, I, you know, here's the thing. I think that our listeners deserve and are intelligent enough to understand why things happen. And not for me to just tell them, oh, be afraid of credit. Go hide from credit. Don't ever use credit. I mean, you guys need to understand you're educated. You're smart. You're, you know, you need to know the why behind things. And so here's, here's what happened with FHA. And FHA is a Federal Housing Administration loan. And this is a type of loan that most first-time homebuyers get because it only requires a 3.5% down payment. It's a little more flexible on your income, a little more flexible on your credit score. You know, it's really there to help people become homeowners without being reckless and, and giving loans to people that don't, don't qualify but FHA, uh, as did anyone who made mortgages, saw some losses. They saw some trouble because a lot of people defaulted. A lot of people lost their home. A lot of people during the downturn couldn't sell that needed to sell, couldn't get out, uh, had a mortgage payment they couldn't afford, right? And so FHA saw these losses piling up, and they actually were about to have to go to Congress and get a bailout. And the Federal Housing Administration does not want to have to get a bailout. No. And so they said, all right, we're going to have to raise our costs. We're going to have to raise our charge to the consumer. So when you get an FHA loan, you pay monthly mortgage insurance, which is like PMI. It's the FHA version of PMI. And, and they, they went from charging a half percent a year to 1.35% a year, right? And so this means that even when interest rates, I think the best FHA interest rate I saw uh, was probably three and a quarter, right? right? Maybe a three. And this was, this was like 18, 24 months ago. But the problem is, you, on top of that three and a quarter or 3% interest you paid to us as the lender, you had to pay another 1.35% to FHA, which made the relative cost 4.35 or 4.55, depending on your, you know, 4.6, which isn't all that great. And and so they did this for two or three years and they they banked all this cash and and they finally got right and they no longer are at risk of a bailout and the funds have replenished and the reserves are back and everyone can now hold hands and sing Kumbaya at FHA. And so they finally decided to lower it back down. And so they didn't lower it all the way back, but they lowered it down to 0.85. So they, they lowered it considerably. And so if you've got an old FHA loan under the 1.35, which is anyone who got an FHA loan more than about four months ago, you can refinance that loan to lower the mortgage insurance. And here's what I will tell you, Rob. There are a lot of people calling in to do that. Right. What we find is most of them are better to go into a conventional loan. Now, we would make more money if we stuck them in a new FHA loan. Right. I'll, I'll be completely honest. Right. Are. And, and there's a lot of companies that are doing that. And there are some really big companies who are doing nothing but churning their customers from old FHA loans into new FHA loans because that's what puts the most money in their pocket. And that's the easiest way for them as the lender to make money. Well, what I have my guys do, because one thing is my staff doesn't make different money no matter what type of loan you get. Right? They don't. They have no right. incentive to sell you one type of loan versus the other. That's a very important thing to me. I don't ever want, you know, like that. We talked about that article where the guy was getting 13 points on reverse mortgages. Yeah. So he's crazy. he's going to try to sell everybody a reverse mortgage because he makes $13,000 per reverse mortgage at this competitor of ours. If he sells him a forward mortgage, he makes five grand. If he sells him a reverse mortgage, he makes 13 grand. What's he going to sell? He's going to sell a reverse mortgage. Exactly. It's like it's like annuities. And we'll have that conversation another day. Oh, please. Financial planners make ridiculous money on annuities. And so they sell them to people, even if it's not the best financial thing. So I looked at all that. And that's one of the things that to me was broken in the industry. So all of my loan officers make the exact same money, no matter what loan you get, because I don't want them to be incentivized to sell you something crappy. So what we do is we look at your situation and guess what? For most people, their home has gone up in value over the last 18 months, right. last 24 months, and it's gone up in value enough that they can get into a conventional loan and have no PMI. So why would I stick you in a new FHA loan and have you pay a lower PMI when I could have stuck you in a conventional loan and had you pay no PMI? Well, the answer is greed. That's why some companies do it that way. Yeah. The other answer is some people do not qualify for the conventional loan. So I would say probably about one out of five people that call here. So if five people call here, wanting to do an FHA refinance to lower the mortgage insurance. Four of them, we end up putting into conventional loans and saving even more money. 
The fifth person is either in an area that didn't go up in value or there's something else about their situation, maybe their credit score, maybe their income, some other reason they have to take the FHA loan, which is still savings because they're lowering the mortgage insurance premium. Exactly. But the best solution is for us to be able to get you into a conventional loan. And again, that four out of five people that call here wanting an FHA to FHA refinance, we put into a conventional loan. So when when this mortgage insurance dropped and, and everyone come at, came out and said, oh, FHA streamlined volumes are going to skyrocket. And so I geared up and I'm like, yep, let's do it. We're going to do all these FHA streamlined refinances. It's going to be great and whatever. And all of a sudden, like three months later, I'm looking at the numbers. I'm like, why are we not doing very many FHA streamlined refinances? And so I get everybody in a room and like, well, Robert, so many people have equity now that they can go to a conventional loan and that's what's better for the consumer. And I'm like, you're right, guys. Great job. Good. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, I'm glad we're not doing more FHA loans. You know, we thought we would. You know, when, when, the, when the industry, but I'll tell you, there's a lot of lenders out there doing a ton of them. Mm-hmm. And you know what that tells me? If I look at a company and they do not have four conventional refis for every FHA refi, then they're taking advantage of that consumer. Agreed. They are putting that consumer into a loan, not because it's the best thing for the consumer, but because it's the best thing for them. And how can you as a consumer protect yourself from that? You have to educate yourself because when you can look back at them and say, well, you know what? This crazy guy on the radio on Tuesday morning told me that it's probably better for me to go into a conventional loan than an FHA loan. So I need you to tell me why you think I don't qualify for a conventional loan and why you are so bent on putting me in a new FHA loan when I think I can save more money with a conventional loan. And if you don't like the answer you get from that guy, call somebody else and call somebody else. And if five people all tell you you don't qualify for the conventional loan, then you probably don't. Take the FHA loan. Save what you can save. But if you find somebody that says, hey, you know, I'm not greedy. Yeah, you're right. You, you can get the conventional loan. That's perfect. That's probably where you want to go because that's what's going to save you the most money. So if you're in that FHA loan, if you're in an FHA loan and you're paying that higher, like makes you want to throw up every time you write your mortgage payment, FHA mortgage insurance premium. I mean, Rob, this, this can be like 300 bucks a month on some loans. Major. Just getting thrown away in mortgage insurance and they can refinance to a conventional loan and it goes from 300 to zero if they've built up enough equity over the last 18 to 24 months, which with home appreciations, a lot of people have, and we can help you with all that. 855-773-8634. If you're listening and you have an FHA loan, even if you've talked to somebody else, talk to us. Let me give you a second opinion. Shop around, get another quote, empower yourself. Don't just take the first offer you're given. Don't let some company take advantage of you. Be a smart consumer. 855-773-8634. That's 855-RP-Funding or visit us on the web at rpfunding.com. That's rpfunding.com at 855-773-8634. Don't forget that home value hotline at 866-222-8231. The best way for you to confidentially get the value of your home with no strings attached. And here's a guarantee. Your name will not be put on some list. And there's a lot of companies out there advertising right now that they say for free, they're going to supply you with your home value. And they don't do a very good job of it, but they're also harvesting your name so they can sell it to people in the real estate industry. There's an awful lot of that type of marketing going on right now. So you got to be careful with your information. And I assure you that the Home Value Hotline is totally confidential and the value of your home is spelled out by a local real estate professional who has taken a pledge not to try to sell you anything. There's just a great service that's provided by the Robert Palmer family of companies. Okay, that's going to wrap it up, Robert. I want to remind everybody, more financial empowerment comes your way on the iHeart channel named Robert Palmer. Also on the Saving Thousands radio app that you can download from your app store. And don't forget about savingthousands.com. 